Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Okay, a pretty wild headline from ZME Science this time. Livers can stay alive and functional for over 100 years across multiple donors and recipients. Oh, Whoa. like you're yeah. getting second. Like I know about liver transplants, but then they're moving it to a third person. <laughs> Forgive the pun, but true to their name, livers seem to be capable of incredibly long lives, according wow. to some new research. The research team had members from UT, Hook'em Horns, and Transmedics out of Massachusetts, and the results are based on a admittedly small but still growing subset of livers that have been transplanted once or several times for a cumulative age of over 100 years across patients. And so the team wanted to know, like, why are these livers so dang good? <laughs> so they studied these particular livers and explained that their results potentially open the way to allow older individuals to act as liver donors. So mm. this feels a little counterintuitive, right? <laughs> like, usually you're thinking you want a fresh organ, right? right. You want that motorcycle accident oh. where it's like a 21-year-old, <laughs> right. but it's a pretty fresh liver, right? But what they looked at was pre-transplant survival, essentially the donor's age, and they stratified out these remarkable livers. They looked at 253,406 livers transplanted between years 1990 and 2022. And of those livers, they found 25 of these like super duper amazing livers. Hmm. Now, the average donor age of this subset of organs was much higher than of donors for livers that didn't pass 100 years of age. Huh. So these super livers, they came from donors on average of 84.7 years old versus 38.5 years of age, respectively. Another notable difference between the two groups that the team observed was that Donors from the centurion liver group had lower incidences of diabetes and fewer donor infections. You know, we previously tend to shy away from using livers of older donors, but if we can sort out what's special amongst these donors, we could potentially get more available livers with even better outcomes. So right now, or at least at the time of publication of this article, there are about 11,000 patients awaiting a transplant. So mm. demand is way outstripping supply. I mean, we talk a lot about reduce, reuse, recycle. This is a really lovely case of the very underutilized reuse, right? Yeah. And once you've taken the old person's liver, you can use the rest of them for Soylent Green. It's fine. Like <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from technologyreview.com. and It's titled, We Used to Get Excited About Technology. What Happened? Oh, man, I'll tell you right now. It's <laughs> capitalism happened. A lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This one is by Shannon Valor and written in the first person. It's a bit of a think piece, but I felt like this was very resonant. So on a recent evening, Valor sat at home scrolling through her Twitter feed, which, considering she's a philosopher who studies AI and data, is always filled with the latest tech news. 
After a while, she noticed a heaviness growing in the pit of her stomach, the telltale sign that you are not having a good time. (laughs) Truth. But why? She wasn't reading about news, politics, or the climate crisis, or the pandemic. She had blinked at the aesthetic poverty of the most recent pitch for Meta's Horizon Worlds VR game, featuring Mark Zuckerberg's dead-eyed cartoon avatar (laughs) against a visual background that one Twitter wag charitably compared to the painted walls of an abandoned daycare center. (laughs) She had let out a quiet sigh at the news of Ring Nation, an Amazon-produced TV show featuring light-hearted viral content captured from the Ring Surveillance Empire. Uh. And naturally, she poured her emotion into a tweet storm. And it reads, The saddest thing for me about modern tech's spiral into user manipulation and surveillance is how it has just slowly killed off the joy that people like me used to feel about new tech. Mm-hmm. Every product Meta or Amazon announces makes the future seem bleaker and grayer. Yeah. It used to be the opposite. Tech was one of the things I loved the most. When I saw my first Concord, my little heart exploded. Yeah. The last time tech made me truly gleeful was these glories, and it's a photo of the old-school MacBook all-in-one colored huge CRT monitor. Oh, yeah. With the handles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were sweet. Yes, with the handles. The juicy fruits. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And... Finally, ending on, what will it take for us to get that feeling back? I don't think it's just my nostalgia, is it? There's no longer anything being promised to us by tech companies that we actually need or asked for. Just more monitoring, more nudging, more Mm -hmm. draining of our data, our time, our joy. It's agency, right? Like, what do you want to do versus what do they want you to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the craziest thing about Horizons in particular, to go on a tangent, is that it's just a very bad remake of what already exists. Oh, yeah. And it's just laughable. I mean, are they going to introduce like a coronavirus pandemic within the world for that verisimilitude? Because clearly <laughs> we can't get enough of it right now. Like, hey, we talked about once the virus in World of Warcraft. It can happen. That's like, right. That's right. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this thread of Valor's struck a nerve. Something is missing from our lives and from our technology. Its absence is feeding a growing unease being voiced by many who work in tech or study it. The goal of consumer tech development used to be pretty simple. A new refrigerator is shiny, cuts down on energy bills, makes cool-looking ice cubes, so we buy it. Done. (laughs) But this vision of tech is increasingly outdated. It's not enough for a refrigerator to keep food cold. Today's version offers cameras and sensors that can monitor how and what you're eating, while the Roomba can send a map of your house to Amazon. (laughs) It's not just consumer tech and social media platforms that have made this shift. The large ag tech brand John Deere, for example, formerly beloved by its customers, is fighting a right-to-repair movement driven by Mm. farmers angry at being forbidden to fix their own machines, lest they disturb the proprietary software sending high-value data on the farmer's land and crops back to the manufacturer. Several respondents objected to her thread by drawing attention to today's vibrant market in new tech for geeks and nerds, Raspberry Pis, open-source software tools, programmable robots. But engineering and inventing were once professions primarily oriented towards creating more livable infrastructure rather than disposable stuff. Vital technologies like roads, power grids, sewers, and transit systems used to be a central part of the engineering enterprise in the U.S. Nowadays, we treat them as taxpayer burdens, and our best minds and resources are funneled instead into data-hungry consumer devices and apps. Even space travel has lost its humanistic vision. Today's frontier (laughs) is luxury space tourism and billionaires selling credulous investors on fantasies of escape to Mars. Mm -hmm. With 8 billion people teetering on the precipice of global environmental destruction, we can't afford a world where the core mission of new tech appears to be take the money and run. Same as it ever was. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know... 
unfortunately, the response to that is kind of too bad because, like, uh, there are people who make a stand. Like, uh, Damn Interesting as a whole is 100% ad-free, has been from the beginning. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you there is literally no one who works at Damn Interesting who doesn't have a day job. Because you like (laughs) the and and we absolutely could run ads and be self-sufficient, but like philosophically, we don't. And the result of that is we barely scrape by. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's the choice we've made. But not everybody can run this way. I get it. Integrity is exceedingly unaffordable in late stage capitalism. That's the truth of it. If you create an opt in resource allocation (laughs) social contract, it'll never work. Mm hmm. Yeah. And to offer a contrasting potential ray of light, I really do feel like the recent pushes towards decentralization, towards improving, you know, the eco friendliness of blockchain technologies, things like that are really significant because they enable people to create new economies outside Mm -hmm. of the things that previously exist and based on what individuals value as aggregate groups. Exactly. So I yeah. think that this article and the sentiment around it is really symptomatic of a change in the way that people mm-hmm. are considering all this tech. And that is one thing I am hopeful for. That's yeah. true. I mean, if people are looking around and saying this is bad, hopefully the result of that is then so we're going to change it so that you're right. That is hopeful. That's good. Yeah. Next link. <laughs> next link. Okay, well, this next article is from sciencealert.com, and it's called Electric Discharge from Plants May Be Changing Air Quality in Ways We Didn't Expect. Oh. Yeah. And I personally love it when an article starts off with a phrase like, scientists have long known, because I almost always didn't know it. But here we go. Scientists have long known that plants and trees can emit small electrical discharges from the tips of their leaves when the plants are trapped beneath the electrical fields generated by thunderstorms. So basically, <gasps> when there's lightning coming down from above, the plants are also shooting little tiny lightnings back at them. Ooh. Wait, the plants are fighting lightning with lightning? Yes, 100%. And these discharges, known as coronas, are sometimes even large enough to be visible as faint blue sparks. But now, as the title says, researchers have discovered that these electric sparks from plants are also dramatically changing the air quality around them. So when these coronas happen, they give off radicals, which are certain chemicals that contain unpaired electrons, which makes them highly reactive with other compounds. In this case, with the plants, the two radicals given off are hydroxyl, OH, and hydroperoxyl, HO2, both of which are known to oxidize or steal electrons from a number of different compounds in the air, thus transforming them into other molecules. And whether this is good or bad depends on what they're reacting with. So if a hydroxyl radical reacts with a greenhouse gas, such as methane, it effectively removes the damaging molecule from the atmosphere and helps combat (gasps) climate change. But if the same radical reacts with oxygen, it can create ozone, which, though it does play an important role in the upper atmosphere, is toxic to humans. Mm. Now, the reality is that plants are not fully responsible. They're not the only things doing this. One study showed that coronas produced by metallic objects, such as telephone poles and cell towers, produce a slightly higher level of hydroxyl radicals than plant coronas. And nothing on the ground comes close to the level of radicals produced by lightning itself. A 2021 paper from the journal Science suggested that thunderstorms could be directly responsible for up to one-sixth of all the hydroxyl radicals in our atmosphere. Mm. That being said, the lightning is releasing the radicals high up in the sky, while the plants are releasing them down here where we breathe. So to a certain degree, the plant radicals do affect us more directly. Globally, there are about two trillion trees in areas where thunderstorms are most likely to occur. 
And at any given time, there are 1,800 thunderstorms going on around the planet. And this especially is important as most models suggest that thunderstorms are becoming more frequent and powerful due to climate change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it could be a good thing because more thunderstorms means more greenhouse gases getting pulled out of the air. But it could also be a bad thing because you don't want your forests to be full of unbreathable ozone. You know, we just don't <laughs> know at this point how it all balances out. But during the experiments, the team did make another helpful discovery, which is that the leafy discharges also gave off sharp spikes of ultraviolet radiation. And this means that rather than trapping plants in a container and trying to count the number of radicals and try to extrapolate from there, we should be able to look at large areas in the field and measure the UV radiation and then compare Mm. what the air quality looks like there versus a different field where no discharges are occurring. Which to Mm. me, I'm just like, oh, cool. So not only are the trees giving off blue sparks I didn't know about, they're also (laughs) giving off radiation, another scary thing. But I guess we've lived this long with it, and I've never gotten a sunburn Mm -hmm. in the forest, so it's fine for now, maybe. It really brings forest bathing to a whole different level there. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Maybe you're all just getting high on ozone. Maybe that's what's yeah. really forest bathing. <laughs> it's what humans love, oxygen. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Okay. From the New York Times, believe it or not, a sunfish found near the Azores weighed as much as an SUV. And scientists Whoa. are saying, hey, it's a sign that the sea's largest creatures can live if we let them. Truer words, folks. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, okay, big fish stories, they're sort of like a legend unto themselves, right? People do tend to exaggerate when it comes to the size of the fish, but some scientists found their skepticism blown away once they actually saw it because it was the biggest bony fish they had ever seen. In fact, might have been the biggest anyone had ever seen. Okay, this fish. It weighed over 6,000 pounds, which is wow. around the weight of a Chevy Suburban. We're specifically talking about a supersized southern sunfish, a species of mola. And if you've never seen this fish before, I highly recommend it Google. It is absurd. It's <laughs> the only <laughs> way I could use to describe it because it looks like a flat disc floating vertically with a fin directly on top and below that are in the same orientation of its body. So it looks like there's no way it can swim fast. In fact, it cannot. And the first time I ever saw one was in person at the Osaka Aquarium, and I bust out laughing because it was the (laughs) largest fish in the aquarium, and it was so dopey looking. And I was informed (laughs) that, well, it's mostly bone, so they don't taste good, which is why they can be so undisturbed in the ocean. And apparently, I mean, there are a lot of them. Over 90% of fish have these bony skeletons and thus fall into this category of bony fish. And although no bony fish has ever come close to reaching the size of a whale shark, which is the largest cartilaginous fish, the size of the sunfish found in the Azores was pretty dang big. But apparently this is not an abnormal individual whose extreme size is due to a genetic mutation. The species can get to this size. We just finally managed to weigh and measure one. (laughs) Aside from their size, they're known for their clumsy swimming style, which I've already kind of relayed. 
They use their dorsal and anal fins to propel these huge hulking bodies through the water, which is done slowly and haphazardly. Often, if you see them alive, you see them floating on their sides at the sea surface, which scientists think is to warm up or maybe even make it easy for seabirds to pick off the parasites on their skin. Oh, nice. (laughs) Yeah. So the logistics with this discovery, pretty sad. Uh, After local fishermen and boaters found the southern sunfish floating, a group of scientists from the research nonprofit Atlantic Naturalist towed its body into the harbor, hoisted it onto land using a forklift, you know, get all the data, take the pictures. They spent about several hours measuring the length, weight, stomach contents. The fish had about eight inch thick skin, so dissection was particularly tricky. And because the fish was too large for any local museum to preserve, it was buried on a nearby hillside. Okay. Uh, we <laughs> so, couldn't measure it in the water. We had to take it out and kill it. Like, I mean, that's so depressing. It is. And, you know, in particular, this fish, its life may have been cut short because while they were examining it, they noticed a large contusion on the side of the head, which could be a sign the fish was hit by a boat, so scientists oh. believe the boaters in the Azores need to slow down and be more mindful of their impact on ocean wildlife. But they're hoping that the discovery of this fish shows people that, hey, even with all the garbage we're pumping into the ocean, we can still grow these amazing animals, you know? Maybe we should do more to protect them, even if they swim stupid. I mean, if it swims that stupid, maybe it ran into the boat. You don't know. Like... <laughs> <laughs> Y'all know I love animals, but you got to Google this fish when I'm done because you will understand. It's Im- <laughs> it's like America's funniest home fish. I can't nice. even. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from SciTechDaily.com. It's titled, New Pill Replicates Exercise and Strengthens Muscle. Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah, we've been waiting for this one for a while. I'm on board, yeah. (laughs) I mean, waiting and sitting, but, you know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Waiting, not weights, right? There you go. (laughs) Recently, Japanese researchers discovered a new drug that, by producing effects comparable to those of exercise, may help treat locomotor frailty. Physical inactivity can result in a weakening of the muscles known as sarcopenia and bones known as osteoporosis. Exercise dispels this frailty by boosting muscular strength and suppressing bone resorption while simultaneously promoting bone formation. Exercise therapy, however, cannot be used in every clinical situation. Researchers from Tokyo Medical and Dental University, TMDU, discovered that Aminoidazole derivative locomedazole, LAMZ, mimics calcium and PGC-1-alpha signaling pathways. These pathways are activated during exercise and stimulate the expression of downstream molecules that are involved in the maintenance of muscle and bone. Senior author Tomoki Nakashima says a both oral and subcutaneous administration of the drug improved the muscle and bone of mice with locomotor frailty. So, so it's not going to make me buff. It's right. just going to prevent me from wasting away. Yeah. Eh, all right. I mean, good. I don't want to waste away, but. Yeah. I like that this is being specifically like targeted towards actual conditions that this can right, improve right. instead not of lazy be people. like. Exactly. This is not like the Wally future that we're all basically barreling towards. 
boards, but you know, for specific conditions. I'm really curious too about how that may have applications for long COVID, mm. specifically because exercise and exertion is so damaging and detrimental. I wonder if this could be kind of a stopgap there. But yeah, I just realized we do have a drug that makes us bulk up. It's called steroids. <laughs> and if I wanted to, I could take it. So this comes down to a uh, lack of motivation on my part once again. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, just in time for Halloween here in the States, we have a spooky adjacent article that's digging into the question, why is 13 considered unlucky? Mm. And we start off with some stats that were pretty astounding to me. Like, I obviously grew up being aware of certain superstitions in a sort of cultural way, but I've never known anyone who took the number 13 or black cats crossing your path or anything else like that seriously. But in fact, more than 40 million Americans admit that they would be uncomfortable staying on the 13th floor of a hotel, (laughs) which, by the way, works out to 13% of Americans. (laughs) And we are definitely catering to that fear as a society because according to the Otis Elevator Company, six out of seven high-rise buildings pretend not to have a 13th floor. They just skip the counting straight to 14. Hmm. Some other major examples include the NASA numbering system, Which, if you'll recall, they did have an Apollo 13 mission. It didn't go so well. And after that, they named their 13th shuttle flight STS-41G. In Belgium, complaints from superstitious passengers led Brussels Airlines in 2006 to revamp its logo, which had been the letter B made up of 13 dots, but now has a 14th dot inserted because people just didn't want to fly on an airline whose logo involved 13 dots. Like, this is a stretch to me. But again, people believe this. Superstition. It's powerful. So the fear of the number 13 is known as triskaidekaphobia, and its origins are pretty murky. One theory is that it's simply 13's proximity to 12. That's the problem. Joe Nickel works for a nonprofit called the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, which scientifically examines supernatural or controversial claims, And he says that 12 represents completeness for several major historical groups. It's the number of gods on Mount Olympus, the number of signs in both the Chinese and Western Zodiac, and the number of apostles of Jesus. Hmm. And there is a term for this in psychology, which is felt sense of anomaly, basically meaning we as humans have a tendency to prefer the familiar and reject the unusual. There is no 13th month, 13-inch ruler, or 13 o'clock, And while this isn't generally enough on its own to lead to a full-blown phobia, it does sort of prime us to be distrustful of it because we just don't see it as much in our lives, at which point things start digging in further through confirmation bias, which of course means we remember things we already think are true and forget things that we don't. And then once the idea is entrenched in one person's mind, psychologists say it's time to look at the social spread of ideas. In modern terms, you know, we'd call this a meme, which originally didn't actually refer to funny pictures on the internet. The word meme was invented by biologist Richard Dawkins to describe how an idea, an innovation, fashion, or any other bit of information can diffuse through a population. In his conception, a meme is actually very similar to a piece of DNA because it reproduces itself as it passes from one person to another, and it has the ability to mutate along the way. And then once a meme starts appearing in pop culture, regardless of whether it's meant as sort of cheeky symbolism or an ironic nod or whatever, that only makes it stronger. In Norse mythology, for example, the god Loki was the 13th one to arrive at a feast in Valhalla where he then tricked another guest into killing the god Baldur. And in Christianity, Judas was the 13th guest at the Last Supper. 
And these references to what already exists in the culture also serve to reinforce it, right? Mm. But of course, you may have noticed, with the exception of the Chinese Zodiac, all the examples so far have been very white examples. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in other modern cultures, there are other numbers that are considered way more unlucky than 13. In Japan, nine is unlucky, probably because the word for it sounds similar to the Japanese word for suffering. In Italy, it's 17. And in China, the number four sounds similar to the word death and is so actively avoided by people that it's standard practice to pay a higher fee in order to avoid having the number four in your cell phone number. Wow. Dang. And of course, let's not forget the number 666, which is considered lucky in China, but is, of course, associated in the Christian world as the so-called number of the beast. And just to make me suffer, the article includes the word for an intense fear of the number 666, and it is hexacosio hexaconta hexaphobia. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Fortunately, this podcast is dropping on Friday the 28th, so we have no need to worry. But in case you're curious, the next Friday the 13th in this country is happening this January in 2023. And it is apparently also known as National Peach Melba Day and National Rubber Ducky Day, among other things. <laughs> so, I don't know. I feel like we should maybe hype these other holidays and not worry so much about Friday the 13th. But, nah, you, know. you just need 13 Peach Melba Rubber Ducky combos <laughs> created to commemorate the occasion. That's right. Just lean into it. Be yeah. happy about it. <laughs> next link. Next link. Good news, everyone. NPR is reporting that the U.S. Mint will begin shipping coins featuring actress Anna May Wong this month. And it's going to be the first oh, U.S. Hmm. currency to feature an Asian American. Mm, wow. I'm Vogue posing. I know you can't see it right now. But. <laughs> Dubbed Hollywood's first Asian American movie star, Wong championed the need for more representation and less stereotypical roles for Asian Americas on screen. Wong died in 1961 and struggled to land roles in Hollywood in the early 20th century, which was, you know, a time of yellow face when white people mm. were wearing makeup and clothes to take on Asian roles. And she was crazy underpaid. Her top billed role in Daughter of the Dragon, she got six grand. But Warner Oland, who only appeared in the first 23 minutes of the film, he got 12 grand, easily wow. just doubling what she had. Not only that, for Shanghai Express, she made the same amount of money, 6000 but Marlena Dietrich, oh, 78000 Even back then, I know! So after experiencing this bullcrap, <laughs> Wong moved to Europe and starred in English, French, and German films. And she told the LA Times in a 1933 interview she was tired of the role she had to play in Hollywood. Quote, why is it that the screen Chinese is nearly always the villain of the piece? And so cruel a villain, murderous, treacherous, a snake in the grass, she told the newspaper. We are not like that. Her career spanned 60 films, many in the silent era, and she earned a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1960. And... This program is, it's, it's a larger program. So it is bigger than Anime Wong. Um, they've got this American Women Quarters program where they celebrate five female trailblazers in American history each year, starting this year, all the way to 2025. So Wong is featured on the fifth coin released this year. We're going to have about 300 million Wong quarters produced at facilities in Philadelphia and Denver. Other quarters within the program were poet Maya Angelou, astronaut Sally Ride, and Wilma Mankiller, first female principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. 
I mean, I think it's way better than all the quarters with the stupid states on them. So <laughs> that's awesome. Right. Like, I remember when they did that and everyone was like, what? Every quarter is going to look different. And it's like, well, yeah, but they're just the states. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it didn't feel that cool to me. And I knew people who were like, oh, I'm going to collect all fit. I'm like, all right, if you say so. But these are interesting. I like these. Yeah. These I'm, cool. I mean, maybe this will get us to use more cash coinage in circulation. But I definitely want to grab all of these, especially because we've got one, the first female principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. Her name was Wilma Mankiller. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. be looking wow. for those. That's Badass. an awesome name. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and they picked quarters. So like as inflation keeps on going, we're going to lose pennies and nickels and dimes, but quarters will stick around for a little while at least. Forever. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from sciencealert.com. It's titled, A Fluffy Marshmallow World Has Been Discovered with Incredibly Low Density. Ooh, finally! <laughs> yeah. It's like Ghostbusters. It's <laughs> Stay yeah. puffed home world. I am here for it. Unfortunately, it is not literally made of marshmallows, right. as you might imagine. Yep. But still pretty fun. So, if exoplanet research is to be believed, the Milky Way galaxy could be like some sort of fantastical candy land. First, there were the discovery of exoplanets with the density of cotton candy. Now, astronomers say they've discovered a world that is comparable to the density of marshmallow. This is important. It means that worlds with significant gas envelopes can be found closely orbiting the small, tempestuous dwarf stars, which astronomers had previously suspected might strip any closely orbiting planets of a large proportion of their atmospheres. Hmm. Since atmospheres are thought to be one of the key characteristics that allow life to form and thrive, this would have implications for our understanding of the habitability of planets orbiting red dwarf stars. Red dwarf stars are by far the most numerous stars in the Milky Way. They're very small and cool and dim. So dim, in fact, that not a single one can be seen with the naked eye in spite of making up around 73% of all stars in the Milky Way. Mm. Because they are small, they burn more slowly and way less hot than stars like our sun, which means they have significantly longer lifespans. Our sun's lifespan is estimated to be only about 10 billion years, whereas red dwarf stars are expected to live trillions of years. This longevity, coupled with the abundance of red dwarf stars, means that life, if it's going to emerge somewhere, might emerge on a planet orbiting a red dwarf star. But these red dwarfs can also be really, really cranky too, lashing the space around them with powerful flares that can irradiate and sterilize any exoplanets in close orbit and strip them of their atmospheres. And because these stars are so cool, in order for an exoplanet to have a temperature conducive to life as we know it, that planet would need to be within flare-lashing range. So, that is a problem. But, maybe it isn't, as this new world suggests. It's called TOI-3757b, and it's a gas giant orbiting a red dwarf star in the constellation of Auriga, about 580 light-years away. The average density of TOI-3757b is 0.27 grams per cubic centimeter, which is one extremely fluffy exoplanet. <laughs> so fluffy that it's unclear how it could have formed so close to its star. It completes one orbit every 3.43 days, which is, that's Ooh. that's how long the year is out there, which is intense. Yeah. The team hopes to find and study other such marshmallow worlds out there to help figure out <laughs> how they can form and survive in a place where it ought to be difficult for them to do so. Yeah, I'm kind of terrified of the idea of a planet with an atmosphere that simultaneously thick and fluffy, because like, you could sink into that 
and then not be able to swim to the surface. You know, it's like a quicksand planet. Unless you are gifted with wings and this is an angel planet, in which case, when are rich people going to be able to book a ticket there? (laughs) (laughs) Just send them all there. (laughs) It only takes 580 light years. You know, what's what's a little bit of light year time in between this forever rapture? So many of them can't wait to get to. And besides that, any kind of light year measurement, my brain is immediately like, doesn't matter, we're going to get wormholes. Like, we're, <laughs> we're not going to ever have to deal with those distances once we finally figure out, you know. So, yeah, we can go to the marshmallow planet. Yay! Sure. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We are so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include You Can Smile Yourself a Little Happier, Scientists Suggest, How Do the Books We Read Change Our Brains, and The Strange Awful Truth Behind Utah's Eerie Stone Cross. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, again, we have no ads. You can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.